millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Ah, I've caught Gary by surprise there. Uh, my name's Peter Hart and I'm with the lovely Gary Bain and we're all ready for another great podcast. Well, we hope it will be. What's it on today? It's Aris Air War, the continuing story of the Aris Air War. This time, the second battle of the Scarp. Ooh, was there a first? Uh, well, it must have been. <laughs> yes. What the, the first day of the Battle of Arras, yeah. So, um, so let, let's let's look at where we're up to. Um, the, uh, we've got uh, in in the narrative, we've got to the sixteenth of April, and I describe this as a bit of a sea change. Why would I describe it as a sea change in the fortunes of the Allies in nineteen seventeen? Why would I describe it as that, Gary? Well, this is the day that Nivelle finally launched his postponed offensive, which he'd confidently boasted would achieve success within 48 hours. Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. Within 48 hours and finally drive the Germans from France. So how did it go? How did it go? Well, at last, at 0600, the French infantry went over the top, supported by the fantastic firepower of 5,350 guns all along the Chemin des Dames. Well, uh, so what happens is some early, there are, people often put this as re- just total failure. There are some early successes, but it's all a bit of a false dawn, isn't it? Because uh, what do you think happens after the early successes? Well, what do we think the Germans do? Uh, go home. What do they always they do? They always do it. Well, they, they, they counterattack and they crashed these attacks home. Around 120,000 casualties were suffered in the first two days. How many uh, casualties did we suffer on the Somme on the first day that we never shut up about? Well, about 60,000, wasn't it? So it's, so, on the, it's, it's, so this it's is equal equal numbers. Only two days of it. Mm. Uh, the, 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 it's worth pointing this out. Now, um, so so what what a gone Robert Nivelle, uh, the, the great hope, if you like, of, uh, of politicians, including Lloyd George, who'd uh, put Haig under his command, uh, 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 indirectly, but under his command. Um, what, what had gone wrong with Nivelle's plans? Well, <laughs> some of it was that they'd been compromised by breaches in security, but there were also some uh, intrinsic faults. In essence, Neville failed to take all the facts into consideration. 
So, well, one of them would be, he'd made his reputation with some successful attacks at Verdun, the later stages of Verdun, and they relied on massed artillery over, it's a relatively short frontage, uh, and just three or four divisions attacking uh, on the frontage there. And and that is, you cannot get enough guns to, to replicate that with the same devastating artillery barrages on a front that's 25 divisions long. There's just not enough guns in the world. Um, and especially if you want to secure any sort of tactical surprise, because you can see it happening, the Germans can see it happening. Anything else you'd fail to take into consideration? Well, the possibility of a, a varying quality in the opposition offered. The German divisions that uh, Nivelle had faced in the Verdun sector in late 1916 had been all but denuded of their artillery. Such were the voracious demands of the Somme battle to the north. Many had already been battered by their awful experiences on the Somme or at Verdun. They were therefore in no fit state to resist a renewed French offensive at Verdun in 1916. So what we're saying essentially is that Nivelle is a, a bit of a plonker to draw general principles from a, from a specific set of circumstances that had applied at Verdun. You can't say, oh, it worked there, it's going to work everywhere. He hadn't discovered uh, the, uh, the secret of success in the Great War then, had he? No, and the British High Command had always been dubious about Nivelle's grander promises. Do you mean Haig? Uh, not only Haig, there were others too. But the die had been cast, and it was apparent that in order to give Nivelle the best possible chance, the pressure at Arras must be maintained to assist their French allies. This is your point once more about you know, having to do things in support of your allies, not necessarily that are tactically or strategically in your own advantage. Absolutely. The whole of Arras was a diversionary offensive. People forget this sometimes. So there'd be local attacks would continue and they threw, and I'm using this word together, the British threw together some uh, some hastily drawn up plans for another large-scale attack along most of the uh, Arras front. And this is what would be uh, launched as a second Second Battle of the Scarp. Uh, the first was on the 9th of uh, April. This is the Second Battle of the Scarp on 23rd of April. So, so what scale of attack are we talking about? Well, it's quite significant. Nine divisions would attack along a nine-mile front, but this time they'd be faced by the fresh troops of an equal, if not superior, number of German divisions. Now, who else is also going to suffer because uh, of this decision? Well, uh, I think you're you're referring to the RFC because uh, fine body of men. That meant their agony would be prolonged, not just through bloody April, but into May as well. Now, uh, so or uh, it just carries uh, over Arras. Then the the core machines are these are the artillery observation and the uh, the, the photographic reconnaissance aircraft, uh, basically BETCs, RE8s. There's a couple of them arrived, and uh, not couple, but they've started to arrive. They've got to carry on doing their daily duty whenever the weather allowed them. Uh, um, and, and this is a moot point because what happens around about the seventeenth of April? Well. A belt of non-stop rain was followed uh, up by a period of four days of low clouds and rain, 
with the inevitable result that almost no flying was possible for the next four days. So th this is uh, you know, this is bad if you've got an offensive on the 23rd. And we've told people a hundred million times that the RFC is vital to the effective use of artillery. And these plans have been thrown together in the first place. This isn't like the 9th of, of April. Anyway, hooray! 20th of April, the, the clouds begin to, to clear. The weather improves and you get back to some limited flying. Uh, they send out uh, contact patrols to establish touch with the infantry. And, and uh, this is a time where we, we introduced someone we've talked about a lot before. We had a whole podcast on him. Do you remember him? But one young pilot arrives uh, at the front and immediately finds that he, he can't cope. He's suffering from severe stress. What's his name, Ed? Who are you? You're going to be him. Who, who are you? Who are you? Second Lieutenant Edward Mick. Mick to his friends that knew him. Manock. 40 Squadron Royal Flying Corps. And this is what he says. Now, I can understand what a tremendous strain to the nervous system active service flying is. However cool a man may be, there must always be more or less of a tension on the nerves under such trying conditions. When it is considered that 7 out of 10 forced landings are practically write-offs and 50% are cases where the pilot is injured one can quite understand the strain of the whole business. So, 21st of April, the RFC resumes the aerial offensive. This is worth pointing out, the fact that, that if they're attacking on the ground on the 23rd, the aerial offensive has to start before that. Uh, and and uh, But there's still low cloud, there's still mist, uh, uh, but up go the Army Cooperation Aircraft to get the photographs that they couldn't get during the bad weather because they couldn't see. Uh, amongst them, who's, who's amongst them? Tell me who I'm going to be. Well, amongst them is Captain Eric uh, Ruth and 2nd Lieutenant Mackenzie of 16 Squadron. And you're going to tell us what Captain Eric Ruth says. I am. Uh, the CIA sent for me and I said, uh, I'm sending 2nd Lieutenants Jock Mitchell and Lieutenant Rod Rogers over to Lons to try and get some vital information. I require a machine from your flight to go as escort. God, what a thought. A real full-on hope. One B2C to escort another. Futile, of course, but nevertheless, orders is orders. And I thought, this is where I meet my end. Ooh. Being the flight commander, it was only right that I should go myself. That's a fine attitude. As soon as we crossed the line, hell was let loose. We were only about 500 feet up and had to fly low to get this information. Every gun, machine gun and rifle which could be brought to bear on us was blazing away. Black smoke from the guns was all around us. Bullets were passing by. Was I frightened? <laughs> Talk about the cold sweat of fear. It was horrible, added to which I could hardly keep up with Mitchell. He was going flat out. <laughs> Don't blame Mitchell for that. Uh, as to being of any use to him, it was out of the question, though the fact that I was following him may have been considered as moral support and I might draw any attack. Well, that's hardly good for him, is it? But there you go. Bait. Hmm? Bait. Yeah, bait. He did not waste Mitchell, did not waste time over Lance. No sooner was he over than we turned back for home. So he took his photographs and turned back, back through the barrage. It was even more intense than on the outward journey, but luck was with us so far, and we reached our lines. I heaved a sigh of relief. That was the hottest journey I have ever had in my life. Certainly the most terrifying. However, it was over. Mitchell had done his job, so what mattered? 
I got out my map and started to make a reconnaissance of the German barbed wire. Mm. And then it happened. In a second, everything changed. And once more, you're going to relate what Captain Eric Ruth says. I'd made one or two notes on the map when I happened to look round to see where Mitchell was. And what I saw filled me with horror. His machine was on fire and he was halfway to the earth. He'd jumped out. At this instant, I was shot through the hand. Why I was not riddled, I don't know. The machine was hit in front and behind me, so he's been attacked by a German scout. My observer also escaped. My first reaction was to put the aircraft into a right turn and look for my enemy. He was in close attendance. He dived, but I did not let him get a bead on me. But he succeeded in putting a bullet through my engine, camera and petrol tank. I found myself getting nearer and nearer to the earth. My observer was doing his best to get bursts in at the Hun, but he was not very successful. Chiefly, I fear, because he kept moving the error. Because I kept, not he, I kept moving the aeroplane violently round the sky. I was not below the level of the ridge. The Hun was still in attendance and the engine damaged. Blood was streaming from my wound. There was no alternative but to land among the shell holes. I flattened out and waited for the crash. But no, my luck held, and I landed without even tipping up on my nose. Having seen the ground, one would have said it was impossible, but we did it. Our troubles were not over. The Hun was determined to get us. He dived firing as he came. His shooting was not too good, and I jumped out and got into a shell hole, yelling to my observer at the same time, Give that bastard hell! So his observer's still in the aeroplane, having a shot at them. Um, uh, very lucky. If you think about the pictures of the no man's land and, and, and the area around it, you can imagine how difficult it was to land a bloody aircraft in it. Well, I think he's, he's right. It's just pure luck. There's, he just happened to be on a flat part. On the 22nd of April, the weather was much better and many more recce's and artillery observation flights were made. On Monday, 23rd of April, at 04.45 that morning, nine divisions went over the top between Gavrel and, uh, I think this is Crossfields, along the Arras front. This was St George's Day. ha, ha, ha. But no sane man would have wanted to share the glory that was to be found in the Second Battle of the Scarp. Now, things were, didn't go well. And one of the reasons is the German artillery. And this is that we talked about the, uh, the Big Dipper, where if you do something well, like we did, for instance, on the 9th of April, the Germans will adjust their tactics. And what have they adjusted? Well, their artillery. They'd adjusted the tactics and lay, and, and lay further back and safely out of range of all but the heaviest British artillery. In their defensive capacity, they didn't need to reach deep behind the British lines. All they needed to be able to do was pour shells into troops advancing across no man's land. And they did that to devastate in effect. Now, the German Air Force is also carrying out its role, I suppose. So, so they are also intervening. Now, we've got a quote for, I, 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 this is, a lot of this is from my book, which was called Bloody April. I wanted to call it Up the Arrows because I thought that was a, a much more, uh, Peter Hart type. An evocative oh, yeah. description of what happened to the Royal Fly Corps during Bloody April. But this is uh, the leading seaman, Thomas McMillan, uh, who's uh, 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 headquarters, uh, 189th Brigade. What you're going to be. The Leading seaman? I take it he's on the ground. He's on the ground. He's with the Royal Naval Division. As you well know, they have now got proper military types. So they used to be 1st and 2nd Naval Brigade. Now they're one, well, this one's 189th uh, Brigade. Anyway, what does uh, Thomas McMillan, who, by the way, is a miserable Scottish bastard, 
I'm not going to say that they all are, because that would be untrue. Yeah, I'll, I'll do an Edinburgh accent then. A hostile aircraft flew over our front and signalled to the German artillery. So, hang on, hang on. So this Glaswegian <laughs> yeah, has a, happens to have an Edinburgh accent. Yeah. A hostile aircraft flew over our front and signalled to the German artillery, who concentrated on the village with all the venom they possessed. When the fire cleared, the counter-attacking troops came on, but they were caught in the open and decimated by our artillery and machine gun fire. At dawn on the 24th, our positions were bombarded relentlessly, and throughout the day, the bombardments were repeated with such frequency that it seemed as if the enemy intended to blast us out of the village. When the fire lifted to our back areas, however, wave after wave of German infantry pressed forward and counter-attack succeeded counter-attack. Our artillery were now functioning as never before. No sooner was each attack launched than they placed a heavy barrage behind the advancing columns which crept towards our lines and met a similar protective barrage placed in front of our positions. Through this inferno, our men poured rifle and machine gun fire. In all, seven organised attacks were met in this manner. When at last the guns were stilled and the air was clear again, out in the open fields lay the mangled remains of thousands of our adversaries, while here and there a solitary figure was seen to stagger and fall to rise no more. Gavrell was ours. Oh, it's Gavrell, uh, Joe Murray, who uh, we've talked about many times, who was in the Hood Battalion. He left a brilliant account of uh, Gavrell. It's so detailed that old Pete Simpkins, Prof- Professor Pete Simpkins, said you could follow his route through Gavrell now through, through the detailed description. Old Pete Simpkins. He is old. No, old. I can't say Mick, but you can say old Pete Simpkins. Yeah, he is old. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that, <laughs> that, so, well, now, the uh, who's keeping a track of where the infantry have got up? Well, it's the RFC and the accurate reports that they bring uh, back with uh, their contact aircraft had allowed proper defensive fire plans to be constructed once massed gun batteries of the Royal Artillery knew exactly where the infantry were situated. No flesh and blood could hope to pass through a full-scale artillery barrage unscathed. So, without the guns, what do you think would have happened to Gavrell? Well, Gavrell would surely have fallen against the mass German counterattack. Well, because that's what used to happen. Uh, and things are moving on. Uh, now, further to the south, with less detail on this, the infantry of the 51st Highland Division, i.e. Fine, what do you mean? Uh, yeah, they're, they're hurling themselves against, well, I, I think I've described it as the dreaded uh, chemical works at Rue. Um, uh, what's the fighting like here? Well, it rages with an unparalleled intensity. Time after time, the British thought they'd captured their objective. Again and again, the Germans counter-attacked under the cover of their artillery bombardments and threw the intruders back in scenes of near-total confusion. All along the line, the fighting raged. Nobody knew what was happening. And, and this is where the contact patrols are so vital. But they, they, no one could tell what was happening because they keep moving backwards and forwards in this area. Um, it, it's very difficult for, for contact patrols to, when in these situations to, to find out what's happening. If, if the infantry in close contact, why, why wouldn't they light flares or, 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 or put umbrellas up or whatever they do to... Uh, well, what, it attract unwanted attention from uh, the Germans. Those Germans, don't they want us... To, you know, they're not cooperative, are they? Now, to make matters worse, the Royal Flying Corps had by no means achieved aerial dominance above the battlefield. 
Although there were swarms of British scouts and corps machines aloft, they couldn't knock out all their German equivalents out of the sky. They just, uh, yeah, they just can't. Uh, it's, it, it's one of those things. But something does happen that day that's important. What would you say that is? You know what I'm going to say, but what was it? Well, it marks the day the first real patrols were undertaken over the lines by 56 Squadron, uh, and at last their new SE-5 scouts were considered ready for action. Yeah, this is this is important. The SE five A because the, the the remember we talked about how fifty six squadron had modified their scouts and uh, and uh, Albert Ball had worked on it, uh, the great uh, British ace, and uh, they they begin to fly and and fifty six squadron is a bit of an elite squadron. They've been carefully selected. So why uh, is this an important moment in the war? Well, because the I mean the SE five A would be the great the one of the two or three main British fighters to, scouts to the end of the war. Um, so if know, it failed, they'd be left in severe difficulty. It is. So it. I mean, and and there were quite, I mean there were questions about the SE five early on because um, because the, the, the for instance the shop with Camel that's the other great fighter or scout that had been delayed uh, that wouldn't arrive for another week or two. Uh, uh, but again. We're looking into the future. Well, in the event, the SE-5A proved a great success, as we well know. So, in the air, on the ground, the fighting rages on rages, Gary, rages. Um, all through the 24th of April, um, the Germans never disposed to sit back and let the British do what they want uh, or to keep their gains. Uh, and, and what do they do? They move their reserves up and they counterattack. And, and those counterattacks become ever more threatening. Uh, and we're just, as was it so beautifully read out by you, Macmillan's quote shows, it's the artillery really that's got to keep them back. Um, now, part of this then is that the British become desperate to, uh, to, to, do, to remove what? Because we haven't really focused on this, but what else is that provides artillery observation above the front? Can well, you guess? you're referring to the kite balloons, and in this case, the German kite balloons that peered down on all their movements. And on the 24th of April, they launched a concerted effort by the new port scouts of 1st and 60 squadrons. Uh, and this is Lieutenant William Molesworth of 60 Squadron. We had received orders that all balloons had to be driven down or destroyed as they were worrying our infantry and gunners during the advance. We had been practising firing the Le Prieur rockets for some time. A most weird performance. They're basically giant fireworks that you attach to your wings. We did not think these were much much of a success owing to the difficulty of hitting anything. Yeah, that would do it. Uh, so decided to use Tracer and Buckingham bullets instead. These are filled with a compound of phosphorus and leave a long trail of smoke behind them. We all went off individual to the various balloons which had been allotted to us. I personally crossed the trenches at about 10,000 feet, dropping all the time towards my sausage, which was five or six miles away. This is not me being an arse for once. No, this is. Uh, I deliberately they, allowed you to do this, man. This is because they, 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 that's what they genuinely call them. It was floating in company with, company with another at a, about 3,000 feet and reminded me of that little song, Two Little Sausages. Two Little Sausages. And... No, that's a different one, isn't it? Yes. Ah, we used to love Rolf Harris, and so did all our Australian friends, oh, didn't no. they? I started a straight dive towards them, and then the fun began. Archie got quite annoyed, following me down to about 5,000 feet, where I was met by two or three strings of flaming onions. Flaming onions? What are they, Gary? Sausage and onions. <laughs> they sort of 
anti-aircraft fire and they looked like flaming onions that's what I, anyway luckily too far off to do any damage then came thousands thousands of machine gun bullets from the ground evidently i was not going to get them without some trouble i zigged zagged about a bit still heading for the balloons and when within 200 yards opened fire the old huns in the basket got a wind, got wind up and jumped out with their parachutes not bothering about them, I kept my sight on one of them at balloons and saw the tracer going right into it and causing it to smoke. As our armament consisted of a Lewis gun, I had to now change drums. How many rounds do you get in a Lewis gun? Oh, is it 47? I don't know. I always think it's 41. <laughs> this is a pretty ticklish job when you have about 10 machine guns, machine guns loosing off at you. Not to mention all the other small trifles. However, I managed to do it without getting more than half a dozen or so bullet holes in my grid. He means his aircraft. By this time, the second balloon was almost on the floor. I gave it a burst, because they're hauling it down. I gave it a burst, which I don't think did it any damage. The first sausage was in flames. So I buzzed off home without meeting any Huns. Don't you think this is the limit for anyone who wants excitement? Join the Royal Flying Corps and have excitement. Well, they're certainly getting lots of excitement. Uh, on, on 25th of April and the 26th of April, low clouds restricted the scope of aerial operations. By this time, the utter failure of the Nivelle offensive was clearly apparent, and the French were now in total disarray. After the horror of Verdun in 1916, this new cataclysmic reverse was more than the French troops could bear. And at this point, we'll take a short break. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome back. Now, as promised, the 48-hour offensive extended into a fortnight of fighting with nothing to look forward to but uh, another unending attritional nightmare. So it wasn't 48 hours. No, it no. It was uh, how many hours in the fortnight? Oh, lots. One, two, three, lots. The French infantry began to mutiny. Yep, there's a couple of isolated cases and then uh, and then in this, it, it, it's like it's like well we've had uh, a recent viral plague haven't we uh, covid yeah. and what happens when you get when you get it when it once it starts well it mushrooms it spreads like wildfire Ooh. from battalion to battalion collectively the french troops made themselves plain they would man the trenches and defend their country if attacked but they would not sacrifice themselves on the altar of law offence anymore. Ooh, is that French? That's off offence in French, yes. <laughs> the offensive. So, they're, they're, yeah. Now, uh, um, Nivelle's in a hopeless case. He's promised the world. He hasn't delivered. Politicians, tolerant men, always, always willing to put up with the failure of others, aren't they? Absolutely. They acted swiftly to remove the man who'd pulled the wool over their over-optimistic eyes and led them to vainglorious defeat. Didn't look at themselves, of course. Of course not. Uh, what about Haig? Well, he was clear where his duty lay. He was a good ally then, was he? Yeah, the exigencies... Exigen- uh, what's that word? Exigencies... <laughs> of Allied warfare <laughs> meant that the British Army would have to do everything in its power to assist their staggering ally. Yep, once again, Haig has to postpone his long-cherished Flanders offensive uh, to intensify the effort at Arras. To, 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 he's trying to buy them some breathing space, isn't he, here? He, well, he, I mean, all those uh, tunnels are being dug up at uh, Messines, but oh, they're going to have to wait a bit longer. They've got to... Because it's easier to carry on at Arras. Uh, now, um, uh, what impact are these? Well, these are strategic or grand tactical events. What, uh, what, what, uh, what, what difference does it make to the men of the Royal Flying Corps? Well, they're pressured into more and more missions to satisfy the insatiable demand for photographs. We've mentioned it before. You know, they must. They absolutely must. Do the job. So they had to keep on going up. And uh, this is a, a quote where something goes wrong. This is Lieutenant Harold Balfour. And he and he goes up on the 27th of April and something goes very wrong, doesn't it, Gary? Yes, this is Lieutenant Harold Balfour of 43 Squadron. I was interested in the battle below me, watching the shell bursts and the infantry crouching in the remains of their trenches and in the water-filled shell holes and craters. It was only when I'd flown some way down the ridge that I realised that at the height of 1,500 feet, I was a mile and a half the German side of the front line. The wind had drifted me gradually eastward, while the line of the ridge itself turned rather west, tending to make my straight course one which would take me further and further over the enemy side. I swung for home, and putting the nose down, opened the throttle wide. The wind was against me, and almost as I carried out this change of course, the infantry machine guns and rifles started at me. 
I swung the machine about from side to side, flying a zigzag course, and managed to avoid most of the bullets, with only an occasional hole appearing in one or other of the wings. But before I had reached the front lines, there was a harsh metallic clang, and the engine and propeller stopped. One of the cylinders must have been shot through, and the motor, suffering internal damage, had packed up. There was nothing for it except to glide dead straight, nursing every bit of height that I had left me, if I wished to reach our sector. This was one of the most unpleasant moments that I have ever experienced, because on every other occasion when I had been fighting, I have had command of my machine, the ability to manoeuvre, and the power to retaliate. Now, my front machine gun pointed only to the British lines. I did not dare to divert from the straight path and could only hope and trust that I should have sufficient height to land somewhere where I should not be made a prisoner or shot down by rifle fire. As I glided down the last two to three hundred feet, I flicked up the safety catch of my belt. We just tipped the ridge with a few feet to spare and then stalled the last twenty feet to the ground on the further side of the slope. We touched the edge of a mine crater as we dropped. I was pitched headfirst onto the mud, where my body lay unconscious on the lip of the crater. Now, it's not just... We ought to mention the scouts, because uh, they're, they're still doing their business, and one of them that's doing their back in business, back in harness, is uh, Captain Albert Ball, the great hero of the Somme. Uh, um, and there's increasing numbers of dogfights, uh, because the, there's just lots more aircraft. The, the number of aircraft increases exponentially, and... and, uh, uh, and uh, do you think Albert Ball's intimidated by the superior numbers of Germans he'd sometimes encounter? No, it's a bit like a, a red flag to the proverbial ball for Albert. Yeah, he'd just go straight for it, wouldn't he? Now, uh, uh, there's a load of mayhem going on, but the Royal Flying Corps Corps aircraft, the artillery observation aircraft, the photography, they've got their job to do and they just carry on and most of them manage to perform their duties. And that's because the German scouts are outnumbered and they can't be here, there and everywhere. If they're over here, they're not over there. And in the, when they're not there, they do their job. And I'm going to be Second Lieutenant Charles Smart, who went up with uh, Lieutenant Hendry as his observer. And uh, Charles Smart, I've been in before loads of times, he's five squad and Royal Flying Corps. Bit of a favourite of ours, isn't he? Went up to take photographs for the new line at Oppie. Very sticky job, and I did not like it at all. The sky was full of machines, and fights were going on all around us. We had to retire halfway through the job on account of a Hun which came much too near us. When we when he cleared off, we went over again and finished. Photographs were a great success, and I managed to get all the prints I was told to take. Archie was most annoying. I got two holes through the wings and one through the tail. Who else is uh, busy at this time? Richtofen. He's also once again marauding through the clouds that hung low over the battlefield. Shooting down the artillery observation aircraft meant the shell fire of the battery that they were controlling would be rendered at a stroke unfocused. So what, what benefit does that have? Why, why is it important from the German point of view to shoot down these artillery observation? Well, because... German con uh, concentrations of troops would be less vulnerable to the uh, depredations that a well-timed zone call could unleash. We've said this before, you know, calling in the artillery results in far more deaths than the scouts themselves are, are inflicting on the Germans. And a zone call isn't just a battery, it's a, a cause worth of artillery, so they're just firing at a square on the map. Amazing. Um, so, uh, so, oh, they would have to cut the, the Royal Flying Corps, keep on flying. 
but uh, 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 if, if Rick Dufton shot them down, they wouldn't keep on flying, would they? So this is his purpose. His purpose is not to shoot down scouts, is to shoot down the uh, the uh, the core aircraft, and that's what he would do. Uh, so how's he doing? Where's he get to? Well, on the 29th of April, he claimed his 50th victory. Amazing. He took off accompanied by his brother, Lothar von Richthofen. There's two of the bastards. And they encountered two hapless B2Es of 12 Squadron. And this is what Oberleutnant Manfred von Richthofen of Jaster 11 says. Suddenly, I noticed two hostile artillery flyers approaching our front in the most impertinent and provocative manner. I waved to my brother and he understood my meaning. We flew side by side, increasing our speed. Each of us felt certain that he was superior to the enemy. It was a great thing that we could absolutely rely on one another, and that was the principal thing. One has to know one's flying partner. My brother was the first to approach his enemy. He attacked the first, and I took care of the second. At the last moment, I quickly looked round in order to feel sure that there was no third airplane around. We were alone and could see eye to eye. Soon, I had got on the favourable side of my opponent. A short spell of quick firing and the enemy machine went to pieces. I never had a more rapid success. While I was still looking where my enemy's fragments were falling, I noticed my brother. He was scarcely 500 yards away from me and was still fighting his opponent. I had time to study the struggle and must say that I myself could not have done better than he did. He had rushed his man, and both were turning round one another. Suddenly, the enemy machine reared. That is a certain indication of a hit. Probably the pilot was shot in the head. The machine fell, and the planes of the enemy aircraft went to pieces. They fell quite close to my victim. I flew towards my brother, and we congratulated one another by waving. It is a splendid thing when one can fly together with one's brother and do so well. Now, uh, um, uh, uh, it's sad to say there's no survivors from the, those two poor, uh, British crews of the aircraft. Uh, the, there was one great advantage for the Royal Flying Corps, and that is connected with Rick Duff. And what is it? Well, after his triumph in shooting down four aircraft in a day... This is 29th of April, yeah. ...and achieving the incredible total of 52 accredited victories, Richtofen finally went off on six weeks' well-earned leave. However, he left his brother, Lieutenant Lothar von Richtofen, in command of Juster 11. Now, it may, I, I mean, I want to, I'm, a, I'm an admirer of uh, Richtofen. doesn't mean I particularly like him. I probably wouldn't have liked me either. Uh, but he, he's at his peak, and he's not a wild force of nature like Albert Ball, is he? He's very different. No, he's, he's very cool, calculating formation leader, able to secure the maximum advantage from any situation with the moral strength to avoid engaging in battle if he felt the odds were stacked against him. Uh, and that's not cowardice, that's common sense, because uh, 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 war isn't a game. Uh, and uh, the other thing about him is all the time by his word, his deeds, training of new pilots of Jaster 11, he's moulding a, a, a bunch of callow enjoyees into a group of deadly aces. I mean, when he joined Jaster 11 as their commander, they barely shot down anybody. Uh, but within the next three months, uh, under his command, the Jaster 11 would make over 100 so-called kills. Um, 
now, Rechtoff wouldn't come back till June 17, by which time the focus of the wars moved uh, to Flanders. So for the moment, Gary, they've seen the back of you and uh, your uh, your uh, your Richtofen accent, which I noticed was very like your Blucher accent. That's true. You, but you've got to think about this, Pete. The achievements of the German scouts are staggering. Yeah. Of the eight Jasters deployed on the Arras front, there would only be flying on average seven aircraft a day, a total operational strength of just under 50 aircraft. Seven, eight. Yeah. Four German aces stand out for their startling achievements during oh, the month of April. Kurt Wolf with 23 victories. Manfred von Richthofen with 22, Karl Emil Schaefer with 21, and Lothar von Richthofen with 15. Now, for all their successes, though, you've got to remember that day by day, through all of what, well, it's rather luridly known as Bloody April, the men of the Royal Flying Corps, had they succeeded in their core functions? Absolutely. They, they were providing photographs and artillery observation for the army in the face of relentless casualties. Yeah. Uh, now, they're not heavy in terms of actual numbers, are they, compared to, say, the losses suffered by, um, well, an infantry battalion caught in no man's land by machine gun fire or, or uh, indeed artillery? No, uh, but the cumulative losses could rapidly rip out the heart of a squadron. And this is what Major Jack Scott of 60 Squadron says. In three days, 10 out of 18 pilots were lost and had to be replaced from England by officers who had never flown this particular type of machine because there were none in England. Uh, I mean, that, that does show you, doesn't it? Mm. The casualties are quite startling. Nearly 250 British aircraft were shot down and over 400 men killed or wounded during April 1917. But they are doing the job, and once I always think a sign of how well you're doing your job is what the uh, what 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 the, the the other side are thinking. And there's plenty of signs that the German infantry are, are more than enough of uh, the Royal Flying Corps and uh, what it, and what they're delivering on them. And you're going to be our friend, Second Lieutenant Edward Manock of Forty Squadron RFC. The Germans posted a notice up in their trenches, which read, "For God's sake, give your pilots a rest." We sent three BEs along at once and machine gunned the trench where the notice was. Such is war. <laughs> he always had a sense of humour, did Manic. Um, now, um, and one thing, who else really, really appreciated their efforts? Well, it's, it's it definitely the high command. And this is what Field Marshal Douglas Haig of General Headquarters has to say. <laughs> the splendid work of the Royal Flag Corps under very uh, adverse weather conditions and in the face of most determined opposition has contributed largely to the success of the operations and calls for the highest praise. Adverse. What did I say? <laughs> Just mentioning it. <laughs> he struggled over it. Um, yeah, I now, Haig, who was from Scotland, just in case there was any doubt, <laughs> was determined to fight on to distract Edinburgh. attention from the chaos that was engulfing the French army. The tired men of the 1st, 3rd and 5th armies that have to battle on for at least two more weeks. Their gains must be consolidated and the ground prepared for possible further advances. But above all, they must fight. 
Yeah, for the men on the, the ground, I think what you find is the Battle of Arras is turning into an absolute bloody nightmare. And it does start to mirror the attritional fighting on the Somme the previous year. It wasn't meant to be like that. It had turned, it wasn't Haig's idea. And that's why they end up with the awful casualties. Uh, it's got the highest daily rate of any, of any battle, I believe, uh, uh, during the First World War. Um, in the air, though, there is a slightly changing mood, and it's a bit perverse, really. What's the changing mood? Well, from their perspective, the rank and file of the RFC felt that the tide was turning. New machines had at last began to arrive in substantial numbers, and they'd proved themselves to be effective weapons of war. Yeah, things like the SE-5 are, are, are working. Uh, the Bristol fighters beginning to be used properly. The, 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 the RE-8. Uh, they're still having casualties, aren't they? Uh, but the, the whole mood slightly begins to mellow. And it, <laughs> they don't know it, but of course, Richt often's on his holidays. Uh, which they didn't know that, but it, that would have cheered him up if they'd known. And you're going to, as somebody who sort of sums it up, a second, you're going to be Second Lieutenant Marcus Kaiser of 18 Squadron RFC. Good old-fashioned English name. Since the war has begun, it has been conclusively proved month by month that the Germans were making their last effort. And month by month, I have laughed at this. But this month, I believe it. From what little I have seen of the battle, and from what I have heard about it, I should think that the Hun is really at the last gasp. Though, of course, it may be a long gasp. I think it is only a question of time now, because the enemy must be very much weakened. Well... It, it was a very, very long gasp, but, they, but they, they are tumbling towards the end of their rope, if you like. Uh, 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 but uh, do you think the what, what do you think about the the men of the RFC overall? Then They're, they've had a terrible ordeal, They're a terrible ordeal as well. What what what, what do you think their their mood is? Well, in war, the men of the RFC they stand ready to play their part in the next act of the Battle of Arras, because it's not over yet. Goes into May, doesn't it? Cheers, Pete. Cheers, Gary. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash pg. MH or visit www.blablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablabl
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only two pounds per month and get ad free listening and bonus content you can find links for both on our facebook and twitter accounts sounds great doesn't it